Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Hi, I'm Lisa, and I'm going to read the scripture reading today from Mark chapter 4. That day, when, his evening, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down. And it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Scott. And I am a friend of the vine, a friend of Mark, who invited me into uh, helping during this Lenten season, talking about uh, our theme is weak and strong, talking about vulnerability as a mode, as a way to be in the world. We see that in Jesus, that actually Jesus is very strong, but it's through vulnerability and we're invited into the same way. So we're kind of going through these different aspects of faith and vulnerability and that. And this morning, uh, I wanted to talk about in a way, the vulnerability that is associated with identity, and maybe we'll get into some other words there too. Um, I make my living as a visual artist, which is like a mystery to everybody, uh, including myself, but uh, I think a lot about pictures and images, and so I've been experimenting with these kind of like, I grew up in church, and so we'd always have a call to worship, and usually we would use words to do that, and I've been working through some like visual call to worship. So this morning, I just wanted us to start off. So we have a series of images of a boat, a ship here. And as you're looking at it, I would like you to find which one is you or which one you resonate with this morning. Now, uh, I know always... (laughs) You know, we're, we're uh, as a community, always like, are we interactive or not? You know, but like, I'm curious if, you, you know, mostly the extroverts are like, yes, a moment. And the introverts are like, no, don't look at me. But I, would anybody be willing to just go, you don't have to go into it. I'm just curious, like, which one resonates with you? Can you just shout it out? Which one that you see there? The top, the top right? The one underwater? Yep. The storm in the middle? Middle right. Oh, just kind of, uh, I don't know what you think about that one. For me, it's just like nothing's happening. You're just stuck in the water. Tired. Which one? uh, Are you just, that's tired? Yeah. I'm sorry, what's the one over here? You're on the trailer. You're on the trailer. Great. Yeah, what's interesting about images, a function of imagery, is one of the things it does is it helps excavate. Um, Imagery can be used as an excavation tool. So when we see something in it, we say it resonates with us. What we're saying is that this image is pinning something, dinging something, almost like a tuning fork, that's already inside. Something that's already in there, and you're like, ooh, that's the one. It's not the image itself, it's what it's helping reflect or mirror in you. We'll come back to this image in a bit. Um... 
We have this passage about uh, these disciples following Jesus going into the storm. I wanted to take a little divergent and talk about Peter for a second. Uh, now, I don't know if you know this, but if you look through the Gospels uh, and the way that Jesus calls Peter to follow him, if you, you can kind of piece it together that it didn't, Peter didn't like willingly jump into it right away. Like it actually took a few times before Peter started following Jesus. So if you look in this, the first passage, you can kind of piece this together. I kind of summarized it here. But the first one is in John. So Andrew, uh, Peter, whose name's Simon, his brother meets Jesus, is like, I think this is the Messiah. He brings Simon to meet Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh yeah, you're Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter, which is a really weird interaction. I don't know if you've ever gone to a party and you meet somebody, other adults, and you're like, hi, I'm Scott. And they're like, great, but I'm going to call you Trevor. And you're like, I don't know who this person is. That's weird. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a weird interaction. But right at the beginning, there's like a shift that Jesus is like, you're Simon, but I think you're a little bit more. So then uh, number two, we have this passage in Mark and in Matthew. Uh, Andrew and Simon are... are uh, working on their nets. Jesus is walking along the shore, a precursor to the famous footsteps poster. And he's walking along the shore and he sees them and he says, hey, I want you to come and follow me. And then they, it says they left their nets and they followed him. Now they're following him. They're doing some things. There's a side note. There's this interesting uh, moment where Jesus goes over to Peter's house and he heals his mother-in-law, which I think is fascinating that Peter's married. He has a mother-in-law and we, the Bible never mentions her the whole time, which I think is great because sometimes people can be like, everything is in the Bible that needs to be known. And you're like, there's a, Jesus, Peter's married and we never hear about her. In fact, in church history, in church tradition, when Peter ends up in Rome and gets crucified upside down, uh, some traditions say that his wife was there too. So there's that whole thing. But so Peter's having experience, he's witnessing a miracle with Jesus. And then we go back into Luke and uh, Peter, they like had just got done fishing. Jesus is teaching on the beach. He gets in Peter's boat, not by a mistake, and starts teaching. And they, and they bring the boat off the water a bit. He's teaching. And then when he's done, he turns around and he's like, hey, did you catch anything? And Peter's like, no. And he's like, why don't you throw your nets on the other side? And they do, and they bring out this huge catch. And then Peter <laughs> falls on his knees and he's like, Lord, go away from me, I am, for I am a sinful man. Which is weird. You know, that's a weird response to a miracle. Like I was walking on South Congress and there's a guy who does magic tricks. Have you seen this guy? And I, he was like, do you want to see a magic trick? And I was like, absolutely. And he did a magic trick. A couple of them, the final one blew my mind. And my response wasn't like, I used to shoplift a lot in middle school. You know, that wasn't my response at seeing something miraculous. It was, I was, so why would Peter respond that way? It makes sense if Peter's like, hey, I've had all these interactions with you, Jesus. I keep going back to fishing. Why do you keep coming? Like sinful man doesn't mean like immoral or something sinful in a temple society means I'm just not going and practicing temple sacrifice. I might not participating in religion. Like Peter might be just like, I'm not a, why do you keep asking me to follow you? I'm not really good at this stuff. Like stop asking me to follow you. But he has this moment and he says, yes. And it says they left everything and followed him. I find this comforting. I mean, like what I like about this is because it's, it's, it shows that it's complicated, right? 
It shows that, like, sometimes we can read these stories of disciples and we go, wow, look at them just, like, leave everything, their houses, their jobs, their families, and they just follow after Jesus. And they just, got, like, got up and followed. But it's actually, like, a bit more nuanced than that. Like, Peter was being asked to follow Jesus and move on from a familiar vocation, a familiar identity, a familiar knownness, right? And into something unknown, which can be really frightening. And it's comforting to me to know that I'm not the only one who's faced some hesitancy. Like a life of faith is moving into what is unknown. Now, I know that some people are a part of a church because of the exact opposite feeling, right? Like it's actually like church can feel like a bit of a security blanket. Like it's comfortable in a world of discomfort. It offers a heavenly ticket for the unfamiliar afterlife ahead of us. It offers community in a world of loneliness. And like, I know a lot of you are here just because of the consistency of donut holes, you know, like that is a great gift that this church is giving. But like, we're all here for a number of reasons, a number of reasons. But I think that we can all agree that we are here because in some way we sense God or like a mystery, a holy mystery. Some, like there's a thing behind the thing behind the thing. And we've been captured by love and we're trying to figure out where we can talk about that. Like I think we're here because we want a place to talk about this thing we keep butting up against. And like we're trying to follow Jesus, though like through scripture, discernment, prayer, experience. But unlike Peter, we don't have a physical Jesus to follow after. It's a lot more mysterious for us. But we've been captured by scripture, we're moved by the Holy Spirit, and we're being transformed by love, and we accepting the invitation to follow me wherever that leads. What I want to discuss is the uncomfortable place that follow me can lead us to. All right, so uh, we don't have like time to do a deep dive on, uh, on Peter. You're welcome. You can do that by reading your own Bible. But um, like if we can look at some things we see in Jesus, we see Peter following Jesus. And then you can see there's some kind of like highlights I pointed out here. Like, so there's this moment where Jesus like is walking on water and Peter's in a boat and he sees it and he's like, Lord, ask me to come out and I will. And he's like, come on out. And he walks out and he's like, I'm doing it. And then he's like, oh no, I'm not doing it. Right. And so he's trying, he's participating. There's another time where they're up on a mountain and then Jesus starts glowing white and then like Dead people show up and he's like, oh my gosh, let's build some tents. And they're like, that's the wrong answer, you know? And like, oh no. And then there's like another time where Jesus is like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. And Peter's like, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let it. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. And Peter probably later on is like, am I on the wrong team? I just like, like he has his successes. He has his unsuccesses. He's participating. He's participating the best he knows how. Because like, what I like about Peter is he's ready to participate because following Jesus can often we can be led to places we don't know how to respond to. We don't know how to respond to. One of my, and we were talking about this passage, I think there's another version of it that gets, says things a little bit different, but like the passage of the disciples uh, entering into a storm is like, one of like my, it's a complicated passage for me. So, you know, you have these disciples who are following Jesus and then they get in a boat and like Jesus gets in the boat and they follow him into the boat and then they go out and there's a crazy storm that comes. It says in another, I think another gospel, it says that they were afraid they were gonna drown. Like the wind and the waves was so much. And these are like professional fishermen. So this is like the worst episode of the deadliest catch, right? And they're like, they're like, oh my God, we're gonna drown. And they're like looking for Jesus. I don't know how big this boat is. I assume it's small, but it could be like, 
I don't know, it could be like Diddy's yacht, and they're in the, like, I don't know, where, where is he? I can't where's Jesus, you know, but it's like a boat of men, and men are awful at looking for things, so they're like, where is he? Oh, he's right here, and um, he's like laying on a cushion, and he's sleeping, which just feels like the wrong thing to be doing in a moment that you feel like you're gonna drown, and they wake him up, and he's like, what do you want? He's like, we need you to do something, and they're like, he's like, why? And he's like, because we're gonna die, and he stands up, and he he speaks to the wind and the waves, and everything gets calm, And it says that they looked at him and they go, who is this man who can control the wind and the waves? And what I don't like about this story is it's a story about some people who almost drowned. And like I almost drowned one time and it was not my favorite experience. So I, I, have, I learned how to surf up in Washington State, which is different than California. I'm, I don't know what goes on in California, but I'm sure people are like, bro, what should we do? And they're like, ocean, right? But like in Washington State, if you go surfing, you're like, I got something to prove. So I was doing this, but I was... Um, I've been surfing for about 20 years, but I was on vacation with my family in Southern California and a bro hooked me up with a board and a wetsuit. And so I was going out because I like to carpe diem. And so I was going out every day. And um, this one day, like the third day, it was like a little bit bigger than I feel comfortable with. But because I was in the flow of carpeing the diem, I went out. And if you want to learn how to surf, there's like a few rules you need to learn. One of those rules is when the wave is like this, going like this, you don't want to be here like I was. Because if you're there, all of a sudden this like 10 foot of water swell will push you down, down, down into the dark. And it's, you lose all kind of track of where you're at. It's like being in the spin cycle of a laundry machine. And it's very frightening. But you're in a wetsuit that's buoyant. You're hooked to a you know, fiberglass piece of foam. You're eventually going to come to the surface. But that's dependent on how much water is holding you down. And I hadn't got a great breath. And I remember being deep down in the dark underwater going, getting to the end of my breath and going, oh, this is, this is the moment that I die. Like, have you ever had that moment in like a car accident or some kind of thing where everything slows down? It was in that moment I was like, this is the end. And I, uh, I have some thoughts about what's after this, I, but I honestly don't know. And I'm, I'm really not in charge of that in any way, I guess. Um, but what's going to happen to my body? Like, eventually it's going to come to the surface. Somebody might see it in the white water, and, and they'll see it, and they'll just pull me, you know, they'll get me out of the water. They'll get me to shore. I don't have any ID or a wallet on me, or, you know, they're going to take off my wetsuit. Somebody's going to try to start doing CPR on me because we all saw that on Baywatch. But the truth is only 5% of people ever resuscitate from CPR. Baywatch lied to us. And, like, you know, like, when, when does my, fa- you know, they're going to call an ambulance. They're going to take me away. When does my family come and check on me? I don't have a cell phone or anything. It's not abnormal to go surfing for two to three hours. Is it hour four, hour five? They're on the beach. Nobody's there. They're like, where's Scott? And then I came out of the water and I was like, I think I'm done for the day, right? You know, like, I think I'm done carping the DM. And uh, that might be a little hard to relate to, but how about this? You were all children at one time in your life, right? And if you never were a child, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Uh, But like... You remember when you went swimming with your like friends in a pool and eventually like kids like to start wrestling in the pool and stuff. And there's a moment where you, you got pushed beneath that prepubescent tapestry of bodies, you know, of wrestling. And you're like, guys, I'm underwater and I can't get out. I can't, hey, I can't get, I can't breathe. I can't get out. I can't. And you begin punching your friends in places you never thought you would. It's scary. It's scary to almost drown. And that's where the followers were led. 
That's where the followers were led. And Jesus is asleep. <laughs> Why is he asleep? It, sometimes it feels like he's asleep. In our depression, in our deconstruction, in our disappointment, in our heartbreak, in our failures. Why? Why would he be asleep? So we should talk about butterflies. Friends, do you know how butterflies are made? I'm sure you're an educated crowd. I bet you have a pretty good guess on how butterflies are made. There's a caterpillar, and the caterpillar's like, I'm hungry, right? And it starts eating all these leaves and stuff like that. And then it's like, I'm tired. And then it makes like this cocoon and gets in it. And then like a month later, it comes out and it's like, I'm fabulous. And that's how, and that's pretty much the scientific way that butterflies are made. But there's this really interesting part of the process that we often don't get to see because it's in the chrysalis. And I'm, I'm sorry, this is a disturbing video, but this is like the only video I could see, I could find on the internet about how this, what's happening in this process. But if you were to cut open a chrysalis just within 24 hours of a caterpillar getting in a chrysalis, what would you find in there? Would you find a cozy caterpillar in a sleeping bag taking a nap? No, you would find a big bag of goo. You would find a sack of snot-looking substance because when a caterpillar gets in a chrysalis, within 24 hours, it completely dissolves. It loses all form, all shape. It just becomes goo. And look, it's not like caterpillars long ago decided to make themselves this way. It's the way it's always been. And we have writings from um, people in the 1500s and stuff discussing this phenomenon in our world. And at a time when religion and science weren't so far apart, the conversation went, looks, went something like this. It, the scientists would go, look, there's an animal in our world that dies, that completely disappears, and then it comes back as a different animal. Is that what happens to us? When we die, do we become something different? And if we do become something different, would we even remember what we were before? Would we have any memory of that? Not too long ago, some scientists from Georgetown University decided to test this theory. So what they did is they, ga they gathered a bunch of caterpillars and that were going to become moths, and they separated into two groups. And one of the groups, they were like, be caterpillars and be merry. And then the other group, they were like, we have plans for you. Okay, and so what they did... And what they did with these caterpillars is they would expose them to a smell, a scent, a scent that caterpillars have no opinion about. But every time they would smell this scent, they would receive an electronic zap. So smell, zap, smell, zap, smell, zap. So much so to, that the caterpillars hated the smell. And you know caterpillars hate something when they do this. That's all they got for communication, okay? So... They knew the caterpillars hated the smell. And so it came time where they built their chrysalises and they got in. And so then they had to wait a month. These scientists had to wait a month. And the big question was like, will they remember? What will last? What will go through this process? And so a month later, these moths begin to emerge, these beautiful moths, and they're flying around. And so they tested it. They tested, they released this smell back to the moths. And they wondered, would they remember? And guess what? They hated it. So they knew that somehow in this completely dissolving process, some kind of memory or consciousness or familiarity was making it through that completely destructive process. Another story. In the 1700s, a Dutch biologist named Jean Schwarmadon gathered some colleagues together, and he took a little tiny caterpillar and a little tiny scalpel, and he made a little tiny incision, because everything with caterpillars is little and tiny. And so he made this little incision, and he said, come here, come here, look, look. 
And he said, right underneath the surface is the beginning stages of wings and the beginning stages of antenna. See, when a caterpillar gets into a chrysalis, uh, those wings and those antennas move to the side of the chrysalis and remain there during the dissolving process. And when the right time is for it to complete the process, they come back and finish the transformation. See, the story of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly is not the story of something dying and becoming something different. The story of the caterpillar becoming a butterfly is becoming what was always in there. I would like to submit to you that the boat is our chrysalis. That these followers had an idea of what they thought they were following. That they were like, this is what it's going to be. This is how it's going to turn out. This is how it's all going to happen. And the person they were following took them to a place where that idea could die, could dissolve, could go away. So that they would have new eyes to go and look and go, I'm sorry, excuse me, but who is this man? Like, I would never say that God gave me my most darkest times because that's, that's too easy. But I will say that it took a certain amount of darkness to see the light. It's taken a certain amount of sorrow to know joy. And it's taken a certain amount of unbelief to find belief. Do you, know, do you know what an identity is? Do you know what an identity is? We use that word a lot, identity. Uh, a definition I came across was identity encompasses the memories, experiences, relationships, and values that create one's sense of self. This amalgamation creates a steady sense of who one is over time, even as new facets are developed and incorporated into one's identity. Identity is important because it is who you believe you to be. And it's so scary when who you believe yourself to be begins to dissolve. You may have come across this in your own life, right? Uh, it happens with like professional sports players, right? Because when they start, they start very young and they do sports their whole life, but they peak and they retire at like 28, 28. And then it's really common for sports players after they retire to go get really depressed because they're like, I have a long life. Who am I? Like if I don't do this, what do I do? Who am I? On the other side, maybe some of you have become empty nesters. For a long time, you took care of kids, and that was your whole thing, and then they moved out, and they went on their own, and you're like, here we are, just us. Who are we again? Right? Uh, maybe there is, like, you've experienced some kind of irreversible injury or disease or trauma that's, like, irrevocably changed you, and you're like, I don't know who I am right now. Some of us have been confronted with doubt and despair and deconstruction and heartbreak, and they're just like, well, what, what am I now? Personally, like, it's a bit uncomfortable for me to be here now. Like, I've been a vocational pastor, a youth pastor, an overseas missionary, a college minister. I'm a licensed spiritual director. I'm a multi-book published author on prayer and spirituality. And yet, I'm heartbroken at abusive religious systems. I'm heartbroken at communities that promote love but reject 
and shame those who can't live up to the image of perfection. I'm heartbroken at bigotry and hateful phobias masked by scriptural supremacy. I'm heartbroken that I've worked in churches so long that I dislike the program. Like I've seen behind the scenes too much. So I'm triggered by all of this, like music and transitions and slides and like pastor speakers with all black with white shoes. Like I probably need to join a different religion, right? Like, and I feel like I can't succeed at following Jesus in this capacity. Like when Mark asked me to co-teach during this season, inwardly I was like, go away from me. I am a sinful man. Like, I don't know how to do this. And my long history of uh, shoplifting in middle school. I, that came up too. <laughs> what do we do when who we think we are completely dissolves. This happened to Peter. <laughs> Peter left his job, his vocation, all the things he knew. He followed Jesus, and then he saw his friend get arrested. He saw his friend get executed. He, went, he saw his friend get put in a tomb, and they closed it. He sat with the loss of his friend. The few days later, another friend said, the tomb's empty. He went, he checked for himself. There's nothing there. He's hiding in a room with his other friends. And then Jesus miraculously just appears in the room, shows him his scars, eats a fish. And then like, and what does Peter do? He's like a few days later, he's like, I think I'm going to go fishing. Um, and he goes and his friends are like, yeah, we'll come too. He goes back to fishing. He goes back to fishing. He's out on the water. They catch nothing. Some dude walking on the beach, again, precursor to the uh, footsteps poster, is, says, hey, did you catch anything? And they're like, no. And he's like, why don't you try the other side? And he's like, that sounds familiar. They try. They bring a catch out of the water. It's so big. And he's like, it's the Lord. And he jumps in his underwear in the ocean and he swims to shore. They have breakfast on the beach. And Jesus says, come and Talk with me. And he says, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Three times. He's counteracting the three denials, all of this stuff. Peter went from, I know what's going on, to I don't know what's going on, to I think I know what's going on, to I don't know. I don't. Do you love me? I don't know where you find yourself today in this invitation. Like, I don't know where you find yourself today. And I don't know if you see this as an invitation or a dismissal of participation. Where you're at, do you think you're invited to participate or do you, is it a dismissal for participation? But I would like to submit to you that your conclusions about yourself, your identity, who you think you are to be, are too limited. The goal of your spiritual journey is not to become a better person. The goal of your spiritual journey is to become a whole person. A person who understands that you are a paradox, that you have your doubts and your faith, your despair, your joys. That's all of you, and that is all invited to participate. The great transformation in your faith is the move from working for identity to working from identity. At first, we are building our identity around accomplishment. We like, how many verses have I memorized? How many days have I fasted? How many times did I fast forward those spicy parts in Game of Thrones? You know, like whatever you think makes you moral. But then at, you, that can only last so long because at some moment, a, a kind of storm is going to come to your life and it's going to completely dissolve all of who you think you are. 
divorce, doubt, prison, secrets revealed, failure, addiction, despair, deep heartbreak. And then this is where your identity dies. But what if your conclusion of who you are is too limited? Because more often than not, in our perceived failure, this is where we meet God. This is where we meet love. At the deep down in each one of us, the, the, the image I give for it is deep down in each one of us is, is two chairs. Two chairs. Almost like two chains, but, you know, still open for a rap, a rap career. Two chairs. And it's really hard to get to the two chairs because we live in a culture that can keep us from having to deal with that. Like, you might lose everything, but you can definitely... You know, find some substances to numb that pain, keep really busy, find a partner who also is ignoring their pain and then become obsessed with, you know, all kinds of things to ignore that. But if you give the space in your dissolving, if you, you can get to this room where there's two chairs and the conversation at the two chairs is you and the giver of you. And what your question is, is who am I? And do you love me? That is our deepest question. And the answer from the giver of us is, I love you. And when we embrace that identity, our core identity that becomes, I'm the one who is loved, there's actually nothing that can separate me from love, from God. Then we begin to live, work, love from identity instead of trying to earn identity. When Jesus says, follow me, he means Follow him into the identity that the creator has given you. Like when we read these passages of like these specific disciples, like he's like, follow me, we're going to a geographical place. That's not our invitation anymore. But also like because we live without a physical Jesus, but like also in that Jesus was leading each one of these women and men to a deeper knowledge of who they were. And it transformed them and it transformed their lives and they lived dramatically different lives. I submit to you like that wherever, whatever boat you are right now, that this is your invitation for participation, that this is the chrysalis of your participation. And what we have and what we can start to build off of is a faith not associated with accomplishment, but a faith associated with longing. <laughs> Even if you're like, <laughs> I'm not good at this religion stuff. I think the question still is asked of us, do you love me? Do you love me? That's our place of participation, where we start. I understand that we are a community of faith. And uh, it's, easy, it's easy right now to build communities on what we don't like. That's really easy to do, to go, oh, we don't like this. Yeah, we don't like this. Let's get in our trucks. We don't like this. You know, it's really easy to build a community on what we don't like. It takes tremendous courage to build a community on what we believe together, what we think works, what we think is important. And that is what we are invited to do in this community. What are we going to decide is important? What are we going to hold to? What are we going to commit to? All of that. Uh, we have been giving out a piece of art and a prayer every day for you to have a practice during the week. And this is an icon I made of 
this conversation of identity between Jesus and Peter. And uh, Jesus is offering this key. It's like, uh, look, I'm not an iconographer, but I'm trying to make weird, icon- odd iconography. We said odd iconography. That's what I'm trying to do, make odd iconography. Um, Peter's identity is like a fisherman, and then Jesus is offering him the keys to the church. And he's like offering this uh, kind of thing. There's a prayer on the back by Pierre Telhard de Chardin. De Chardin and I want to end uh, by reading it to you. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say, grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. I'm going to invite the band to come up and we're going to respond uh, in music to God. Um, But I'd like to pray before we do that. So join me in prayer. God, we, um, I think we're all, I'm so glad that you show us through the scriptures that you were, uh, Jesus, that you had a life that was associated with unknown spaces, instability, difficult times, and yet they were all the avenues for participation. God, wherever we're at, wherever we see ourselves, whatever identity we've given ourselves, may the good news of your love be that we have made too limited of a conclusion about who we are, that actually we're being invited into something uh, grander, maybe not necessarily more famous or celebrity or whatever, but more open. Like, I thought I was just this, but you're saying I'm this? I, and we live in that tension. We thank you for your love and your grace for the journey we are on. And uh, we're so grateful that you've given us your word, your spirit, this community, and the breath in our lungs today. In your name, amen. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.